Hi, you're listening to Murder Bird, a podcast where we talk about crimes involving women and girls. My name's Sophie. Today's case, we're going international to Canada. Canada. This is the story of the Montreal Massacre. Montreal is the second most populous city in Canada and the most populous city in the Canadian province, Quebec. It's on the east coast of Canada, bordered to the west by the province of Ontario, to the east by the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, and to the south by the province of New Brunswick and the US states of Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont and New York. Montreal's official language is French, and it's the second largest primarily French-speaking city in the developed world after Paris. Does that mean there are a lot of French names and pronunciations in this episode? Oh yeah. Did I spend four months in Switzerland during my degree studying French, and then another year at university studying French as a second language? Yeah, I did. Does this mean that my pronunciation is akin to a fluent French speaker? Nah, so you're just going to have to deal with it, okay? Montreal is a beautiful city, surrounded by water and filled with green spaces. It is the nation's epicentre of art and culture, and lower cost of living compared to other Canadian cities, such as Toronto. Montreal is home to six universities, including an engineering school affiliated with the Université de Montréal, called École Polytechnique de Montréal. And in 1989, this school would be the scene of one of Canada's deadliest shooting incidents. December 6, 1989. It is a typically cold and drizzly day in Montreal. Students at the École Polytechnique de Montréal are busy studying, teaching, working or taking a break in the rooms and halls of the school. It is just after 4pm and the sun is beginning to set when 25-year-old Mark Lapine enters the school armed with a legally obtained Mini-14 rifle and a hunting knife. With the weapons concealed, Mark makes his way to the second floor, sitting in the office of the registrar for a while. He rummages through a plastic bag he has with him, and declines assistance from a member of staff that approaches him. And during his time spent in the office, he does not speak to anyone. When Mark leaves the office, he is seen in other parts of the building, before entering a second floor mechanical engineering class at approximately 5.10pm. There were around 60 students present in this class. One student was giving a presentation, when Mark approached them and demanded that they stop everything. He then demanded that the men and women separate to opposite sides of the room. Believing that this was a joke, nobody moved until Mark shot his gun into the ceiling. The nine women of the group moved to one side of the classroom, 
the 50-odd remaining men moved to the other side. Mark ordered the men to leave, then turned to the women and asked them if they knew why they were there. No, one replied. Mark told them he was fighting feminism. He said, you're women, you're going to be engineers. You're all a bunch of feminists. I hate feminists. He then opened fire on the students, killing six and wounding the remaining three. As he left the room, he wrote the word shit twice on a student project. The edgiest edgelord, Mark, walked through a second floor corridor where he opened fire again, wounding three more students. He entered another room and attempted to shoot another female student, but the weapon failed. He scuttled off to an emergency staircase to reload his gun, and when he returned to the room again, the students inside had locked the door. Mark, seemingly taking influence from plenty of action films, tried unlocking the door by firing three shots into it, but failed to gain entry. Instead, he moved along the corridor, wounding one student as he went. Mark arrived at the financial services office, where he found Maurice Laganiere. Maurice had opened the door to the office to lock it from the outside, just as Mark entered the corridor. They grappled with the door, Mark trying to yank it open, and Maurice obviously trying to shut and lock it. Maurice managed to overpower Mark and lock the door before running back to shelter. As she ran, Mark fired two shots through the window to the office, hitting her twice in the back. Maurice was the only employee to die during this massacre. In the first floor cafeteria, where around 100 students were gathered, Mark shot a woman, stood near the kitchens and wounded another. Two women hiding in an unlocked storage area of the cafeteria were also murdered by Mark. Making his way to the third floor, Mark wounded three more students in a corridor before entering another classroom. Three students giving a presentation were told to get out. Maurice Leclerc was shot as she stood at the front of the classroom and Mark killed two further women who had been trying to escape. As students hid under their desks, Mark opened fire again and wounded three, killing another woman. It was as he was changing the magazine of his weapon when Maurice Leclerc called out for help. Not realising Maurice had not died when he had shot her, Mark brandished his hunting knife and stabbed her three times. Once he was confident Maurice had died, he took off his cap, wrapped his coat around his rifle, and shot himself in the head. He died 20 minutes after beginning this attack. His last words? Oh shit. 14 women were murdered, and 10 women and 4 men were injured. The women murdered were Genevieve Bergeron, a civil engineering student. She played the clarinet and sang in a professional choir. Helene Colgan, a second-year mechanical engineering student who planned to do a master's. Natalie Croteau, she was outgoing and passionate about learning and planned to spend New Year's Eve in Cancun. Barbara Daignan, she was a teaching assistant for her father, Pierre, she was described as being marvellous, kind 
and very intelligent. Anne-Marie Edward, a chemical engineering student who loved outdoor sports like skiing, diving and riding, and was always surrounded by friends. Maud Havianik, a second-year student in metallurgical engineering and a graduate in environmental design. She was a go-getter who had already started her working life as an interior designer before setting her sights on engineering. Maurice Laganier, a budget clerk in the finance department. She's described as shy, with a beautiful smile, and she had married her husband only three months prior to her death. Anne-Marie LeMay. She was in her fourth year of mechanical engineering degree. She was social, organised and studious, having once wanted to study medicine after one of her close friends lost the use of their legs during her teen years. Sonia Pelletier. She was the head of her class and the pride of her remote birthplace in the Gaspé Peninsula. Michelle Richard. Nicknamed Mimi, she had a brilliant smile and was considered a calming presence. She was gentle and happy, someone who hated violence. Annie Saint-Agnon. She was killed as she sat listening to a presentation in her last class before graduation. She had talked about eventually getting married to the man who had been her boyfriend since she was a teenager. Annie Turcotte. She was described as gentle and athletic, someone who went into metallurgical engineering so she could one day help improve the environment. Barbara Kluxnik Widerzewski. She arrived in Montreal from Poland with her husband in 1987. She's described as a woman who looked forward and had a deadpan, sarcastic sense of humour. She spoke five languages, read a lot, and loved to help people. The final victim was Maurice Leclerc. She had one year to go before graduation and was one of the top students in the school. And her body was found by her father, Montreal Police Lieutenant Pierre Leclerc. So who was the man behind this mass killing that took away 14 women and injured 14 more? Gamille Rodriguez Garby was born on October the 26th, 1964, to parents Canadian nurse Monique Lepine and Algerian businessman Rashid Garby. His younger sister Nadia was born four years later. Mark's childhood was marred with a parental affair, a paternal absence and domestic violence. Mark's father Rashid was an authoritarian and domineering man who was possessive of both his wife and children. He was physically violent and had the belief that women were only there to serve men. Monique would be slapped or punched for any perceived errors she made. And he was neglectful of his children. He considered any affectional comfort to be spoiling them and refused to show any tenderness or care. In 1970, Richard slapped Monique so hard that the marks were still visible a week later. Monique finally decided to leave and their divorce was finalised in 1976. At first, Mark and his sister Nadia would have visits with their father, but they feared him and the visit soon stopped. Mark had no contact with his father after that 
and did not speak about him to others. As Monique returned to work as a nurse, and the children stayed with other family members during the week, she began to become concerned about the effect this would have on Mark and Nadia. In 1976, both children were assessed at St Justine's Hospital, and it was concluded that nothing seemed to be wrong with shy and withdrawn Mark or rebellious and challenging Nadia. During his teens, Mark was described as quiet and shy. He was bright, maintaining excellent grades, and he was attentive and hard-working. He is described as being withdrawn with one close friend, but was hesitant to approach people to strike up friendships or even romantic relationships. Mark had varied interests, like Adolf Hitler, World War II, and horror and action films. He owned an air rifle, which he would use to shoot pigeons. Coupled with the taunting from classmates of his Arab-sounding name and the hatred for his father, Mark officially became Mark Lapine in 1977 when he was 14 years old. It wasn't just his father he hated. He hated his sister too. I mean, it's kind of justified because Nadia would publicly humiliate him about his chronic acne and his failure to land a girlfriend. When Nadia was placed in a group home in 1981, he was overjoyed, and he even admitted to fantasising about her death, going so far to create a mock grave for her. Mark had already committed suicide when Nadia died at age 28 from a cocaine overdose. For two years of his adolescence, Mark had a big brother through a big brother programme. I don't think we've got these in the UK, but I think they're pretty popular across the pond where I think you get like if you're young, you get like a big brother or big sister who's like a person a bit older than you. And essentially they do activities with you like a big brother or big sister, I guess. Um, but Mark had one of these and it seemed really positive. They shared similar interests and their relationship seemed to bring Mark out of his shell a bit. However, in 1979, the meetings abruptly stopped. Mark's big brother was detained on suspicion of molesting young boys. Both Mark and his big brother deny anything happening between them and they didn't see each other again. The seven years preceding the massacre are described by Mark in his suicide note as being joyless. He worked at a hospital doing custodial work and he was described by his co-workers as immature and hyperactive. He was eventually fired from this job in 1987 for aggressive behaviour. He was enraged by this decision and threatened to go on a murderous rampage and kill himself. He flip-flopped in his educational pursuits. In 1982, Mark began a two-year pre-university course in pure sciences, failing two courses in the first semester, but improving his grades in the second semester. After a year at college, he switched from the university-destined science programme into electronics technology. There was an unexplained drop in his marks in the first 1985 term, 
And in February 1986, during the last term of the programme, he suddenly and without explanation stopped attending classes and as a result failed to complete his diploma. In 1986, he applied to study engineering at École Polytechnique de Montréal. He was admitted on the condition that he completed two compulsory courses, including one in solution chemistry, who gives a shit. Near the end of 1987, in order to complete his college diploma, Mark took three courses and he did well in all of them. Then in February 1988, he began a course in computer programming. In the winter of 1989, he took a CEGEP night course in solution chemistry. Oh, he got 100% whoopee-doo. And this was a prerequisite course for the École Polytechnique. Mark applied again for the... God. École Polytechnique in 1989. However, his application was rejected as he lacked the required courses. In March 1989, he abandoned the course in computer programming and in April 1989, he met with a university admissions officer and complained, women are taking all the jobs from men. It's not because I'm a fucking loser, it's because of women. (sighs) Sorry. (laughs) just hate this guy. Between April and December 1989, Mark obtained his permit for owning firearms, purchased the firearm used during the attack, and he was seen outside or near the École Polytechnique University approximately seven times. The reasons why Mark committed this atrocity were argued over for many years. It was suggested that he had a mental illness that caused him to do this such as a personality, narcissistic, or attachment disorder, or all of the above, or brain trauma from childhood. Other psychiatrists argued that he was going through psychosis and he was trying to erase the brutal history between himself and his father. Some people argued that it was due to societal change that had led to increased poverty powerlessness, isolation and increased violence in the media and in society. I think we will all agree that it was an anti-feminist attack. And in 2019, 30 years later, it has finally been officially recognised as a hate crime against feminists, an anti-feminist attack, his hatred towards women and all feminists was the primary reason, if not the only reason, why he did this, okay? Simple as that. He didn't like women or feminists, okay? In fact, I don't even know if he understood what feminism was, because a feminist is apparently someone who takes his job, his imaginary job, that he wasn't even qualified to do, so whatever. And it's not as if this was a secret. It wasn't like it was this mysterious code they needed to crack. In his suicide note, he wrote, Please note that if I commit suicide today, 89-1206, it is not for economic reasons, for I have waited until I exhausted all my financial means, even refusing jobs, but for political reasons, because I have decided to send the feminists who have always ruined my life to their maker. 
For seven years, life has brought me no joy. I'm being totally blasé. I've decided to put an end to those verages. The feminists have always enraged me. They want to keep the advantages of women, e.g. cheaper insurance, extended maternity leave preceded by a preventative leave, etc., while seizing for themselves those of men. Like having a job in engineering. Oh, if only he was clear. If only we knew a reason why he did this. Is it because of the media? Is it films that did this? Shut the fuck up. It was obvious from day one, before it even happened. There is anecdotal evidence and historical evidence that shows that he hated women. Not just women who went to university. He hated them but especially career-driven women or women who went for a more masculine, I'm doing air quotes, role, whatever. That That's it. And I don't, I can't believe it's taken 30 years for it to be like, oh, oh yeah. Or maybe it was then. Oh, all right. In 1991, the anniversary of the massacre was designated the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women. A white ribbon campaign was launched in the same year by a group of men from London, Ontario, not UK, for the purpose of raising awareness against the prevalence of male violence against women. Commemorative demonstrations are held across the country each year on December 6th in memory of the slain women and numerous memorials have been built. Although the massacre brought attention to violence against women on a national scale, this is hardly a comfort to the women murdered, the students injured both physically and mentally, and the friends and family who lost a loved one. Well, thank you for listening to this week's episode of Murderbird. If you didn't notice, it is one that makes me quite angry. I had to cut out a lot of just meaningless ranting. Um, But I think it's an important one. Um, Hopefully I've done it justice. It might be one, well, it will be one I revisit as I become more confident and more competent because there's just so much more, especially in terms of the aftermath. Hopefully you did enjoy If you would like to follow me on social media, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at MurderBirdPod. I've got a Facebook page, but I'm still sort of getting to grips with that. But you can like that if you want. I've got an email address, MurderBirdPod at gmail.com. If you have anything you want to email to me. Otherwise, I will be back next week with a new episode. 